The following presentation consists of systematically developed statements to assist medical professionals in medical decision-making for specific clinical conditions, but are in no way a substitute for a medical professional's independent judgment and should not be considered medical advice. Most of the content herein is based on current literature reviews. In areas of uncertainty, professional judgment was applied. This presentation is a working document that reflects the view of the presenter at the time of publication. Because rapid changes in medicine are expected, periodic revisions are inevitable. We encourage medical professionals to use this information in conjunction with and not as a replacement for their best clinical judgment. These presentations may not be appropriate in all situations. Any decision by practitioners to apply the information in this presentation must be made in light of local resources and individual patient circumstances. Hi, I'm Howie Kirpin and I am the Global Professor of Medical Education at the Hofstra Northwell School of Medicine. I'm also the course director for the LHA's Medical Moments series. As you know, this is an effort dedicated to bringing you in video format, topical, controversial, and possibly paradigm-changing advances in the fields of medicine. Its intent is not to make you expert in these fields, but rather to convey to you a level of knowledge that will be helpful to you in advising your patients, peers, and friends. Before I go on, I'd like to uh, thank the other members of our staff uh, our co-editors, Dr. Stephen Orshan, Dr. Hugh Huberfeld, uh, Dr. Rachel Pesopalik, who just joined our staff, our marvelous computer genius, Reginald Carrion, our indispensable administrator, Jessica Bibby, and, of course, my wonderful wife, who keeps us all together. So, today's topic fulfills the criteria of being of interest, of having broad impact, and possibly being paradigm-changing. We are going to review the systolic blood pressure intervention trial, or the SPRINT study. This study has the potential to dramatically change our approach to treating hypertension. As you will see from the first slide, the study hit both the professional community and the public in general with force. We see it hits Fox, it hits CNN, it hit AP, and it even hit the American Heart Association, who told us even before it came into print, that 16.8 million people might be affected by this study. Today's goal is to discuss the background that led to this study, the particulars of the study, and finally our opinions as to the real-world ramifications of this data. We're going to begin with Dr. Richard Schwartz, who is the medical director and the nephrologist. He's medical director at Long Island Jewish, and he will give us the background on the history of hypertension and what led to the study and I will review the specifics of the study, and lastly, we will have a roundtable discussion as to what this study may mean to you, to our patients, and to the treatment of hypertension. Good morning. Uh, I'm Richard Schwartz. I'm the medical director of Long Island Jewish Medical Center, and by training and background, I'm an internist slash nephrologist slash geriatrician, and we're going to be talking about hypertension. The uh, SPRINT study, which was released about uh, Thanksgiving time in 2015, has raised a lot of questions about the best way to deal with hypertension, and has occasioned a lot of discussion about what we know, what we don't know, and what we should do uh, about this particular issue. 
So what is hypertension? Uh, let's do a little historical look at it. As recently as 1945, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president of the United States, his blood pressure was reported to be 180 over 106. It was not treated, and in fact he died of a complication of hypertension, namely intracerebral hemorrhage. So here's arguably the most powerful man in the world uh, dying with untreated hypertension. Well, why was it untreated? Well, first of all, at that time it wasn't clear that this needed treatment, and even those who did think it needed treatment had nothing to treat it with. It wasn't until the 1950s that uh, hypertension began to be identifiable as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, and in fact some of the initial data was actuarial data uh, contributed by our friends in the insurance industry. They simply found that people whose pressures were higher than 140 over 90 on a regular basis uh, were more inclined to die of heart attacks, strokes, and congestive heart failure, and as a result were less appealing insurance candidates. In the 1950s, treatment became available, uh, initially vasodilators and diuretics. It wasn't clear how effective they would be uh, in terms of dealing with the underlying problems. Um, but the early Framingham studies and some of the VA cooperative study trials demonstrated that with treatment of hypertension, they were able to realize significant decreases in uh, age-correlated deaths from myocardial infarction, strokes, renal failure, and all-cause mortality in general. So it now became clear that treatment of hypertension did, in fact, lead to significant improvements in survival. It still wasn't clear whether this was true for all comers, and I distinctly remember the time when we were taught that hypertension in the elderly was a normal part of aging and did not require treatment. It really wasn't until the SHEP trial of 1991 that uh, it was demonstrated that treatment of hypertension in people over the age of 60, which from my current perspective isn't that elderly, um, did decrease cardiovascular complications. Since then, we've had a, a number of trials demonstrating much the same. This represents a meta-analysis that was just published in The Lancet several months ago. Uh, each circle represents a different study, and over the course of years, you can see there's a pretty direct correlation between the degree with which systolic blood pressure is decreased and the diminution of cardiovascular risks and um, mortality. So, those three questions having been addressed, namely that hypertension was a risk factor, that hypertension could be treated, and that treatment was in fact effective in controlling, preventing uh, complications, other questions remain such as when should hypertension be treated with medications? Uh, is there a difference depending on what age the patient is? And are there specific patient populations that should be treated in specific fashions? Those questions were not yet fully answered. Take a little detour to discuss what we mean by hypertension, and let's just remind ourselves what the determinants of blood pressure are. Uh, we're talking about arterial pressure, and arterial pressure is basically contributed to by cardiac output and peripheral resistance. The cardiac output, in turn, is contributed to by the heart rate and the stroke volume, which, in turn, is a compilation of the pump function and the volume of the vascular uh, components. Peripheral resistance depends on the vascular structure itself, how stiff the vessels are, uh, and whether or not there is vasoconstriction or vasodilatation. And perturbation in any one of these uh, areas can lead to abnormally high or abnormally low blood pressures. Now, in 1976, the Joint National Committee on Prevention, Detection, Evaluation, and Treatment of High Blood Pressure was convened 
try to assemble a group of experts to uh, summarize available data and offer consensus-based guidelines. And they assessed uh, information that came from observational trials, randomized controlled trials, and meta-analysis. And this committee was reviewed by the National High Blood Pressure Education Program Coordinating Committee, which was a a consortium of 39 organizations and federal agencies. So a lot of brain power went into uh, these these meetings. And the JNC convened uh, first in 1976 and then reconvened every several years. And every time they met, their recommendations changed a bit. I'm going to fast forward to the JNC-7, which took place in 2003, uh, the recommendations that many of us uh, have lived with for a while. So they undertook to define exactly what is high blood pressure or hypertension, and much of their information was based on literature review. And at that time, they defined normal blood pressure as anything uh, up to and including 120 over 80, with uh, prehypertension being slightly higher than that, and then hypertension and its various stages being higher than that, as you see on this chart. Their recommendations at that time were to treat blood pressure in the so-called general population uh, to less than 140 systolic and less than 90 diastolic. The reason I say so-called general population is I'm frankly not quite sure who that is. Uh, in their view, that was anybody who was not diabetic or uh, suffering from chronic kidney disease. In that group, they recommended treating the blood pressure to less than 130 over 80. And again, this is based on literature review and on expert opinion. And they recommended that uh, lifestyle modifications would start before medical treatment. And by lifestyle modifications, we're talking about smoking cessation, dietary intervention, and uh, salt restriction, and physical activity. The recommendations continued that if lifestyle modifications did not lead to a pressure of less than 140 over 90, then medication would be recommended. And they basically divided the world into those without compelling indications and those with compelling indications, meaning that the general population would be treated with thiazides, ACE inhibitors, uh, angiotensin receptor blockers, beta blockers, or calcium channel blockers. Those with compelling indications that called for specific medications might have a slightly different approach and some of the compelling indications that they listed were these that you see here, uh, patients with heart failure, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, where there had been medications specifically demonstrated to be beneficial in these conditions. So they divided patients into these categories as opposed to the so-called general population. Now, with these recommendations, this is the kind of results we were getting. Um, this was an improvement over previous NHANES data, uh, which showed 80% of the hypertensive population were aware of their diagnosis. That used to be uh, more like 50 or 60%. Um, of those who were aware of it, many of them were on treatment, but still the overall control of blood pressure according to these criteria was only about 50%. Now, again, this represents an improvement over previous uh, NHANES data, which had showed overall control in the United States to be only about 25%. Again, this is based on the numbers recommended by the JNC-7. Well, shortly thereafter, in 2010, we had the ACCORD trial. Now, the ACCORD trial was specific for type 2 diabetics. And in that trial, uh, there was an effort to target systolic pressure of 120 versus 140. To the surprise of many people, myself included, there was no significant change in fatal or non-fatal MI or CVA. 
um, raising a question as to whether or not the 130 over 80 that was recommended uh, by JNC7 was in fact appropriate. In 2014, JNC8 convened. Now, this is a little bit of a departure from previous JNC groups. This is an expert panel that was asked to address thresholds and targets for blood pressure control, as well as the differences between various drug classes. There was no official sponsorship of this uh, uh, panel. They were not affiliated with any other organization. Their recommendations were going to be based not just on expert opinion, but they were going to be looking critically, uh, ideally, at uh, prospective randomized controlled trials. And they were going to weigh in on the strength of the evidence for every recommendation. Their recommendations, when they were done, uh, included the following, that for the general population age 60 and above, they found strong evidence based on randomized controlled trials that systolic pressure should be treated when it exceeded 150, uh, and the diastolic pressure should be treated when it was above 90, and they should be treated to where they were lower than these targeted, target ranges. Uh, and for people under 60, uh, beginning at age 30, there was strong evidence to treat for a diastolic pressure of greater than 90. They felt there was not sufficiently strong evidence to be certain that at age uh, under 60, systolic pressure needed to be treated uh, with any specific target. Their expert opinion was that the systolic pressure of 140 was appropriate, but again they stress that there is no randomized control study that definitively demonstrates this. They then spoke about special populations, meaning the uh, populations with CKD or diabetes, and once again felt that, particularly in view of the ACCORD trial, some uh, spe specific targets were not definitively um, available. Their expert opinion was that systolic pressure once again should be treated when it was above 140 and diastolic above 90. They furthered their recommendations by uh, choosing specific classes of medications. And they divided the world into the general population, the African-American population, and the non-African-American population. So in the general non-black population, including diabetics, they recommended starting with thiazides, calcium blockers, ACE inhibitors, or ARBs. And they specified that this is based on moderate evidence, not as strong as the first, but more than expert opinion. In the general black population, uh, again, including diabetics, they recommend uh, starting thiazides and calcium blockers rather than um, ACE inhibitors or ARBs. The black population does not have uh, as robust a response to the ACE inhibitors or the ARBs as the non-black population. In the patients with chronic kidney disease, regardless of whether they were black or whether they had diabetes, they recommended including ACE inhibitors or ARBs as part of the original regimen. Uh, this slide basically summarizes uh, everything that I just discussed previously. Now, I think it's important to mention that if you look at the next slide, you'll see that there are numerous other organizations that have slightly different recommendations. So it's, uh, I think, crucial to stress that many of these recommendations are based on expert opinion uh, with room for debate. Uh, there are some areas that are fairly clear-cut, many that are less clear-cut. So this leads us into the current discussion of the SPRINT trial, and I'm going to ask Dr. Kirpin to discuss that trial and see what it does with the information that we've had to date.
to thank Dr. Schwartz for his wonderful overview of the history of hypertension and really setting the stage for what led to the SPRINT study. So what is the rationale for the SPRINT study? Well, first of all, hypertension is a ubiquitous disease. It affects a billion people worldwide. But as Dr. Schwartz told us, um, hypertension does increase strokes, heart attacks, renal disease, congestive heart failure. But what's the ultimate goal? What's the, what is the goal blood pressure? How low should we go? The rationale for the SPRINT study was to try to answer that question. And the authors themselves point out that the NIH stated that this, answering this question probably would be the most important um, advance in preventing the cardiovascular ramifications of hypertension. So now let's go to the next slide and let's look at the background in terms of uh, what uh, caused the SPRINT authors to look at the specific individuals in their study. Well, what do we know? We know that in patients over 50, systolic hypertension is the more important parameter in predicting cardiovascular events. So they, of course, chose patients who were over 50, and they chose patients who had to look at systolic hypertension. Uh, Cochrane review done in the past um, looking at patients who had mild hypertension but no other cardiovascular events demonstrated that there was no particular benefit to treating those individuals. So therefore they looked at patients who had some evidence of cardiovascular disease. The action to control cardiovascular risk in diabetes or the ACCORD study uh, was a very significant study that looked at diabetics and looked at target blood pressures of systolics of 140 and systolics of 120. And this study showed no particular benefit except possibly in strokes and probably and possibly some morbidity um, in treating these patients to these gold blood pressures. So they eliminated diabetics. The SPS3 randomized trial, which was publish, uh, published in The Lancet uh, in England, demonstrated that treating patients who had strokes uh, to target blood pressures of 130 versus 150 had no particular advantage in protecting these patients from recurrent strokes. So they eliminated patients with strokes. So now let's take a closer look at who exactly were in, who and why uh, patients were included in the uh, SPRINT study. So they looked at over 9,000 patients who were greater than 50 years of age with systolic blood pressures between 130 and 150, as we spoke about before. They also had to have an increased risk of cardiovascular events. Okay, once that was determined, they were randomized to standard systolic blood pressures of 140 or intensive therapy of blood pressures less than 120. Their Increased risk of cardiovascular events was defined as either clinical or subclinical cardiovascular disease, that is peripheral vascular disease, a projected Framingham risk of greater than 15% over the next 10 years, chronic kidney disease, uh, that is uh, GFRs between 20 and 60, age greater than 75. They allowed all standard drugs and approaches to control their blood pressure, and the blood pressure was taken three times in a quiet room, it was used, uh, they used an automatic, uh, automated readings and they took the average of three blood pressures. The patients were asked to be seated for at least five minutes. Now what was excluded, and I think this is important, 
difficult to control hypertensives were excluded. Patients with ejection fractions less than 35% were excluded. And those with standing systolic blood pressures of less than 110 millimeters at one minute were excluded as well. So let's look at this again in a little bit different fashion. They first looked for eligibility at 14,692 patients. 5,331 were deemed ineligible to participate. 2,284 were deemed as having too severe hypertension or being on too many medications. And I think when we get to our roundtable discussion, this will become much more important. So how did they define their primary outcome? It was a composite outcome. They looked at the, the uh, composite risk of MI or acute coronary syndromes, stroke, acute decompensated heart failure, or cardiovascular mortality. They had secondary outcomes which looked at uh, GFR in patients who had compromised GFR to begin with and patients who were normal. The results were impressive. Uh, they certainly were able to separate the two populations. The mean blood pressure in the standard group was 136.2, and the mean blood pressure in the intensive therapy group was 121.1. The mean number of medications in the intensive uh, treatment group was 2.8, and the mean number of medications in the standard group was 1.8. The distribution of the medications were the same in both groups. So they used the same kind of medications, but they did not, um, but they certainly had to use more in the intensive uh, therapy group, as you might guess. Uh, this is just a uh, graphic demonstration of uh, what I just said, and the next two slides are just um, simple slides that give you a lot of data, but which I'm not going to go into, but if anybody is interested, they can look at this in the, uh, at their um, leisure. Now, in terms of actual results, there were 243 primary outcomes. That is 1.6.5% per year in the intensive group. There were 319 primary outcomes, 2.19% in the standard group. Now, that's less than 1%, but it carried a great deal of significance, and it was enough for the overseers of the study to stop the study prematurely. The all-cause mortality was lower in the intensive group, Chronic renal disease patients had no difference between the groups, and those patients with normal renal function actually did worse in the intensive therapy group. And these are important but subtle topics that should not be the um, nidus of today's um, discussion. But let's look at this in a slightly different way. The number needed to treat to prevent one primary outcome in 3.26 years was 61. The number needed to prevent death from any cause was 90. And if you look at the causes of death, uh, it's very interesting. There's suicide, there's accident, etc. But if you look at the number needed to treat to prevent death from cardiovascular disease, it was 172. So again, you needed to treat somebody or a group of patients for 3.26 years, three and a quarter years, um, to prevent one cardiovascular death uh, in 172 people. Were there serious adverse events? Of course. Hypotension, syncope, electrolyte abnormalities, acute renal injury, acute renal failure. 
In all, there were 220 adverse events in the intensive group and 118 in the standard group. Absolutely significant and something that we should talk about when we have our roundtable discussion. Data to come. They're going to look at cognitive changes. I think it's going to be difficult to do this since the study has been stopped, but I think we will realize if they can demonstrate that there are changes in cognitive behavior um, due to intensive therapy, that's going to make looking at this study uh, a very different um, um, phenomenon. So where are we? Dr. Schwartz told us uh, from the beginning that the JNC8 told us that patients over, eight, over 60, uh, we should aim at systolic blood pressures less than 150. In patients, in virtually all other categories, we should be aiming for systolic blood pressures less than 140. What's going to be the impact of the SPRINT study on these recommendations? Well, you know, that remains to be seen, uh, but I think it's interesting that many of the people who make the recommendations were involved in the SPRINT study. So I'm looking forward to some changes in these recommendations, but I think it's very important for us as clinicians to look at this in a very different fashion, uh, and that's what we're going to be doing in the roundtable discussion. So thank you.